Welcome to the Profitable NDIS Provider Podcast, where we're joined by your hosts, Tanya Gomez and Paul Bryan. In each episode, we'll be sharing valuable insights and tips to help you turn your NDIS business into a profitable venture. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your business to the next level, you've come to the right place. Let's stop surviving and start thriving. Welcome back to season two of the Profitable NDIS Provider Podcast. So great to have you guys back listening in again. I'm Paul and I'm here with my awesome co-host, Tanya. And today we are talking with Chris. Chris from Care BPO. That's right. Thanks for having me, Paul and Tanya. Yeah, we're, we're excited to have you on our first episode of season two. We survived season one. We made it. We made it. And this is uh, episode 11. And um Today, we are talking about using offshore resources in your NDIS business. And Chris, we've got a bit of a bio for you. So we've got that Chris is a qualified CPA with over 20 years experience, including over a decade in the disability services sector. Chris was introduced to the sector through his role as a CFO of a large West Australian not-for-profit. In 2020, he left his role to start an onboarding onboarding supports with the goal of creating personalised responsive plan management agency. After such a positive experience hiring offshore staff with onboard supports, he partnered with his two original offshore staff to create Care BPO. Care BPO exists to help NGS providers find the right offshore solutions for their businesses. Uh, leading to greater efficiencies and long-term viabilities in a challenging funding environment. And um, that's so exciting to hear all of that because I love my offshore staff. I've used offshore staff for 15 Mm. years. Ron, who is my original offshore staff, has been working with me and we found him via Skype and via Googling to find a good web developer 15 years ago. And um, it has been transformational in all of the business I've been in. Um, he's such a pivotal part of what I do, and I have about 25 offshore staff at any one time, depending on what we're doing. Um, and so when I saw your business at the expo, it was something that I had been thinking for a long time had to happen in the sector. Mm. Um, I would have loved to do it myself, but there's only so many hours in the day. <laughs> so I'm glad someone else has done it because it's one of those ideas that I think absolutely has its place in the sector. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for joining yeah. us. What else would you like to tell us about you and your business outside of that amazing intro? Well, I think to I guess to give a little bit of background on on how I got to this to this point. Yeah. Um, when I, uh, well, as you mentioned, I, I came from the not for profit sector um, and worked as a CFO there. And you know, the idea of offshoring when you work in a not for profit is you know, probably barely even crossed my mind. I think there's a you know a certain culture with within not-for-profit organisations that, um, that you know, you employ Australian-based staff. And uh, so it wasn't really something that I considered in the past. Uh, but when I went out on my own and created onboard supports, I did want to look at uh, certain options that would provide greater viability and long-term sustainability for the organisation. And so I wanted to give offshoring a go. What's, uh, I guess my, my hesitation initially when I, when I thought about this was, how is someone from another country going to adapt to the NDIS. Mm-hmm. It's a very complex scheme, as we all know. And if you're from a place where you've never even heard of that, and there may not be uh, such a comprehensive scheme to support people with disability, how would you adapt to, to how it worked? Uh, but I persisted anyway. Um, and I basically said to myself, look, if I'm going to bring in these staff, I'm probably going to have quite a long training 
period to get them up to speed. I was thinking something like eight weeks of intensive training to get a typical accounts officer uh, up and running. Uh, but, I, but I went ahead and I was so pleasantly surprised at my staff's ability. Uh, they picked it up very, very quickly. It was probably two to three weeks training uh, at most, and uh, and they've been brilliant ever since. Incredibly hardworking, um, you know. They show up every day. They've they've stuck around. I, I haven't lost any staff to to date. So uh, I've had nothing but a positive experience with uh, with my with my offshore team. And so I guess I had a little bit of a light bulb moment, maybe maybe six months in, that um, that this is something that is, is is so important in the in the NDIS space. I think if you think about where we have come from in disability support, you know, 10 years ago, it was state-based funding, supply side, uh, people with disability had to come to an organisation cap in hand for, for supports uh, and dominated by, by not-for-profits. So I think in that environment, um, offshoring was a consideration and, and probably not a high priority. We now move into an NDIS scheme, which is demand-driven. Um, pricing is, is challenging. And we are seeing rise of, of for profits in in the organisation uh, or in the in the scheme. Um, and from there, offshoring becomes so much more important. If you look at the um, the disability support worker cost model, which is what all the the pricing is uh, yep. is based on, you look at the component for admin, and it's something like ten to twelve percent of the the actual price is made up for admin. Now, if you do the calculations on that, if you're a small to mid sized organisation that's turning over maybe you know, half a million to million dollars a year, that's $50,000 to $100,000 to cover your entire admin budget. Yeah. And that's from the CEO down. That's incredibly challenging. So you need to find cost savings where you can and offshoring is a perfect way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think that's a real, um, a real eye-opener for a lot of these smaller businesses um, to find themselves stretched, try to you know, look after participants, look after their team, get the administration done, all their invoicing, um, I talk to a lot of providers who are just going, I don't have time. Um, look, Care BPO, break that down a bit for us. What is a BPO and what does offshore staff look like in the NDI sector? Where where would you use them specifically? Sure, sure. So BPO stands for Business Process Outsourcing. And I guess that can take that can take many forms. That could be hiring a contractor overseas to to take on a certain role all the way to actually outsourcing an entire business process. So maybe hiring a firm to uh, to take over your entire finance function and, and hiring that out to a third party. So it's uh, so it's fairly broad. Um, but what what does that mean in an NDIS context and where does offshoring fit into that? Look, I think offshoring is a, a viable uh, option for organisations for any administrative role um, at, at that sort of back end of your organisation. Obviously, being human services, uh, anything client-facing really should be delivered by Australian-based staff. I don't think that's anything we're ever going to get away from, and I don't know that we, we ever would. But anything administrative-based, so we're talking finance roles, HR, rostering, quality and compliance, uh, marketing, even potentially some IT, all these roles can potentially be outsourced um, to, to, to offshore staff. Yeah, fantastic. Hmm, that, that gives me, I have lots of questions for you, I guess. <laughs> Tanya has more business ideas running through it right now. <laughs> <laughs> always, always, always do. But um, So I've used offshore staff, as I said, for a long time. I found one of the challenges, so in, in my other business, Jobber Solutions, we develop e-learning, um, and we've had a really challenge, with COVID, e-learning has gone 
crazy busy. So we've been busier than ever, but we've had a really challenging time that finding staff, similar to NJS, finding staff is really hard. Um, we hire most of our staff are over $100,000 a year. We have 45 staff. So that's a huge payroll. Um, and we do have big contracts, but the problem is that our staff want to be paid more every year and our clients are asking us to, to pay less every year and are telling mm. us that they've exhausted it. So we're being squeezed on both ends. So as a result, I was like, right, we can offshore some of the graphic design function. Mm. Let's have a look at graphic designers. We had a look and our team lead for graphic design uh, well, a number of our staff in Australia have only been in Australia three, four, five years. So we started with, well, they, there's a, one from Vietnam, one from the Philippines. So we looked in Vietnam and the Philippines for people that studied at the same schools and had a look at graphic design. For me, that was like a no-brainer. We have a very diverse staff. We're all remote. It makes a lot of sense. And I'm not a graphic designer and I hope my graphic designer is not listening to me. But I'd, I personally don't know the difference between an A grade graphic designer and a B grade and a C grade, right? I don't know. I'm not technically able. I can't see the difference. Um, but there's obviously levels and skill sets. I found the biggest challenge for my was the staff accepting the offshore staff, even though they were from similar countries or they had, you know, Australia is so diverse anyway. I didn't think it would be a cultural problem, but it was this thing that there seems to be this underlying cultural Australian staff are just better. Mm. This this attitude of a, an offshore person can never do it as well as an Australian person. And I know that this is simply isn't the case because it's about their skills, their ability, their training, what training you provide. And from using offshore staff, I know that if I spend 10 hours with any person, I can teach them a function. If they're an accountant, I can teach them how to do my payroll. I can't because I don't know how to do that. But, you know, in the marketing space, I have a virtual assistant that runs marketing across three of my businesses. I know I know that I can teach her the process and that I can hand that piece over to anyone, regardless of the country. So for me, it didn't make sense. Is, is there a stigma? Yeah, do people see this? Is this just my organisation? Is there a cultural barrier to overcome yeah. with getting people to accept offshore staffing as a solution? Mm. I think there is a stigma that needs to be overcome. Yeah. I think the way that we've done it in, in onboard supports, um, in, to give you a bit of background about onboard supports, we have uh, seven or eight Australian-based staff yes. and six or seven offshore-based staff. So it's, it's fairly 50-50 in terms of the... The, the team. Um, we're also a virtual business, so we all work from home. We don't have a physical office location. Um, but the way we interact each day is that we have a, a team session up on uh, up on our screens, and we all basically sit in that team. So it has a very office uh, environment feel. And the way we've overcome that stigma, because there was some hesitancy at first, uh, I think, from my Australian staff, um, really just because it was an unknown. Um, yeah. It's not something that they'd done before, but they were certainly, certainly open to it. And the fact that the team is fully integrated and we all interact each day and if someone has a question, they ask and the group hears and we're all interacting on that on that team chat every day, it has become very normalised and it became very normalised very, very quickly. And I think that's a really good way of doing uh, offshoring. I think if you... If you create an offshoring team that, that sits off, you know, in, in their area and you sort of just email them stuff and, and you never speak to them, you do get a bit of an us versus them mentality and it, and it becomes very siloed. So I think a really key thing when you're offshoring is to integrate them into the team and have them there communicating with them every day and they become as familiar as, as the person next door. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I find in, in my other business, they are completely integrated. Um, uh, 
Yeah, they're completely integrated and it doesn't matter where people are. I often forget. Like the other day I sent an email to the marketing team. I was like, who wants to go to this this um, event? And they're mm. like, master fly from the Philippines <laughs> to Melbourne. I was like, oh, right. Forgot. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Forgot about that. Maybe one day. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, the next question I had for you was, um, why would a provider go through a BPO as opposed to finding a offshore person themselves directly? Mm, great question. Sure. Yeah, I think there's a there's a few reasons, and there are you know websites that have uh, have um, popped up where you can go and hire uh, contractors in in another country relatively simply. Um, in terms of why you go through a BPO, I think one key reason is that uh, we we have an entity set up uh, in the Philippines where we actually employ our staff. So very similar to Australia, um, if you're a, a full-time employee or a part-time employee as opposed to a contractor, there's benefits that you receive, you know, annual, annual leave, personal leave and, and the like. And so there's a lot more stability in being an employee versus being a contractor. We employ all of the staff that we then ultimately contract out to to our clients. So they have that stability of being an employee uh, and that helps with staff retention. People feel much more comfortable in their role um, and, and stick around much longer. I think the other reason, um, you know, specifically to care BPO is that myself and my business partners, we operate in the NDIS space every day. We, we know it inside out. Yeah. Um, so we can, we can keep that context in mind when hiring um, but not only that, uh, we can also provide some basic training for, for staff once they're appointed so they can actually get the ground running from day one rather than being completely new to the concept of, of the NDIS. Mm. Yeah, right. Um, I love that idea because it just makes it so much more, um, I guess, stable. You know, a lot of people have come from that really stock standard. We all go to the office Monday to Friday. We, we see our co-workers and then we leave and... Even as people who have come up through support worker ranks and that sort of thing have still had like that localised team. But I guess, you know, through the advent of, you know, everybody becoming so used to Zoom, um, just starting to think outside of that box and realising that your team can really be anywhere. Um, but I do, like I love uh, my virtual assistant, Jay. She's in the Philippines. It's the same time zone. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and she's really committed to what we're doing and she's been integrated right into even my, my Facebook groups and she now interacts as part of it. So I love how that, that's all come together. Okay. Look, providers are definitely under the pump on, you know, we talk about being a, a profitable provider. There's, you know, profit margins. You need to know what you're making on top of the cost of your support worker and then there's your administration costs and then there's subscriptions and fees mm. and everything else coming out. What are the average costs per hour, for instance, for an offshore research um, uh, resource? Sorry, and what does that look like over the year sure. for somebody to come into your business and, and operate in that space? Hmm, sure. So, I mean, it varies a little bit between role, um, as as it would um, regardless. But uh, typically, you're looking at in terms of full cost, um, including you know fees to to employ these staff, anywhere between sort of twelve and sixteen dollars per hour. Mm -hmm. And so, what that translates to as an annual out of pocket cost to your to your organisation could be anything from say twenty thousand to. $30,000 a year. Mm. And so if you're comparing that to a typical Australian role, which might be, you know, anything from 65, up to say, you know, even 95,000 a year, it's it's basically one third of the cost. Yeah. So uh, yes, fairly significant, significant savings um, for each FTE. And then you've got the additional 
benefits as well from a cost point of view without payroll tax. Right. You're not paying superannuation at 11.5%. Mm-hmm. You're not paying for a, a, a head count for your insurances, your mm-hmm. workers' comp insurances. So there is quite a lot of additional financial benefits as well outside of just the dollar-for-dollar matching process there as well. Hmm, Absolutely. And simplicity as well. You know, you don't need to go through that payroll process. You simply just get an invoice once a month for uh, for the the costs and uh, and away you go. Hmm. Amazing. Brilliant. What kind of... So I'm an auditor and Joe's auditor, so (laughs) I go to risks. Um, what needs to be considered from a data protection perspective and to ensure compliance, things around data breaches, that's, that's something that I've heard other auditors ask when when I'm in an audit and an auditor will say about talking about data protection, especially with all of the hacks that have been happening, it's, it's a focus of auditors at the moment. Um, and they ask people who say they have an offshore staff um, even if it's an administrative function, they ask them, well, how do you make sure that there's not going to be any data breaches? What kind of things can you do to minimise those types of risks from a data protection perspective or any of the other risks that having someone in another country might pose? Mm, sure, sure. Um, I'm always a little bit hesitant to give uh, um, data security and IT advice because I'm, I'm not an IT expert, <laughs> but, um, but I think... It's obviously a very important area that you need you need to get right. And I think you need to ask an IT professional, if you're considering hiring offshore staff, what they need to consider uh, from that perspective. And certainly anything that you would put in place for your Australian-based uh, staff is, is important. So two-factor authentication, um, training on, on recognising phishing scams and the like. Um, because offshore staff are no, you know, more likely or less likely to to potentially fall prey to, to something along those lines. Uh, for those who want, I guess, an extra peace of mind, we do offer a data security solution where uh, offshore staff actually work out of um, uh, virtual servers based in Australia. So they'll log into an environment based on a, on a server here in Australia. They immediately access all of their uh, applications relevant to their role. Um, it's all single sign-on, so they don't need to know their passwords. Uh, and they can access all their information in there, do all their work. It's no upload or download, so no malicious viruses can be be uploaded and data sets can't be downloaded. So that provides some some extra peace of mind for uh, for organisations if they're worried about data security. Mm, that's great. And and another question that kind of comes on the back of that is, uh, do they work hourly or are they full-time employees? So do they track their time using a system like that against the projects and get paid for the hours mm. completed? Or is it, do you hire them as a full-time staff to be a full-time or a part-time resource? Or does it really depend on the role and the company? It depends on the role. And we do have flexibility around how we can do that. Um, Yes, you can hire a full-time staff member. And that's what I've typically worked on. But then we have had clients who have needed someone, um, you know, part-time at a certain part of the day. We've also had situations where we've had people basically on call in that they're paid for, say, four hours a day, but available over that eight-hour span. And right. so they're doing their work um, sort of, you know, here, there and everywhere, but, but are available during those time periods. So so very flexible. And we work with the candidates to make sure that they're comfortable with, with that arrangement. Mm. Brilliant. Look, I've actually um, referred a couple of my clients to you now already because I love what's going on. They're definitely in a place where they needed that extra pair of hands to make their business run really smooth, um, help with compliance, help with making sure that everything in the background is happening so they can provide good supports, which is what they're fantastic at. 
Um, I'd love to hear a success story where you've had someone just go, wow, this is just flipping amazing. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I think one in particular, we, uh, we, we got a phone call from a, a service provider um, a little while back, and you could tell as soon as you got on the call the, the stress levels within the organisation. So I was speaking with the CEO, um, and they had had an Australian-based uh, finance resource that had grown very, very quickly, um, and that person had, had up and left quite abruptly yeah. and had been away for, for some time. And so there wasn't really anyone to pick up the slack of claiming payroll and they were just sort of managing as best they could. And you could see the stress because you know, people have to get paid. That's obviously the yeah. top priority in any organisation. But also claiming um, funds from NDIS is, is what actually maintains your cash flow. And yeah. I think there was some, some real worry about long-term viability just simply because they couldn't get the work done. Yeah. Um, so, so we uh, went to a, a higher process basically straight away. Um, we got some really good candidates within a couple of days, uh, presented them to the, the client. They were, they were really happy with them. And then myself and my business partner, who obviously both work in the NDIS and, and know the uh, no proder and, and claiming inside out, we actually handheld that uh, staff member who was very experienced in accounting and had worked in Australian organisations but didn't know NDIS. We worked with them for the first three or four weeks to get them across the um, the complexities of of Proda and and the portal. Got them up to speed, and now that person is uh, is is ticking along really nicely. And um, and talking to the CEO only only a few days ago, you can see the stresses really starting to to disappear. So we're really happy with the yeah. way that uh, that all that all worked. Um, what what is the process when someone starts working with you? How do you go from you know how do I like, yeah, how do you identify the role? How do you decide on the skill sets? How do you then recruit for that? How much, how involved is the NGOs provider in that process? And, and how long does that process generally take? Sure, sure. So initially we asked for a job description from the provider themselves or the client. Um, and, and that gives us a really good understanding of, of you know, what they're trying to, what they're trying to fill. From there, we design a job ad um, so that that you know, it best translates from what an Australian-based company wants into what a Philippines-based candidate is, is looking for in, in a role. We, we generally do a two-week advertising period. So it can take up to two weeks to find um, the right staff member. But we do find, because we're recruiting simultaneously across roles, we do have a recruitment pool or a candidate pool that, um, that we can draw from. So it can take a little bit, little bit less. Um, myself and my staff, we shortlist and interview um, beforehand, and then present a short list of candidates to to the provider, and then allow them to uh, to interview there. So that's typically the way it's it's gone. We we've handled that uh, that back end process. But if a provider wants to be more involved in the recruitment process, they certainly can be. Um, but generally, they rely on our experience to sort of get the right the right people, and then screen them at the uh, at the back end. And is it generally a a new recruitment cycle every time you have a new client or are there resources so if, if someone needs a bookkeeper for example and they might only do payroll once a month and they just need someone three days or five days in that month to do the payroll mm. do you share resources across providers or are they an individual assigned to an individual client 
Up until this point, we've only done individual um, placements, uh, but I think there is a real potential for that. Um, and we'd be more than open to doing it because it's, um, yeah, I, I, you're exactly right. The people are going to need people sporadically here and there. So a job sharing role could work really well. So certainly open to doing that. I've noticed with staffs in the Philippines that I've worked with that um, that they really they love the Australian time zone because a lot of them work in the American time zone and they really want set hours and they would like to be full time if not a little bit more than full time um, and so I'm thinking that potentially if you had a bookkeeper who was uh, like my, my bookkeeper is in the Philippines he he does work for us a week on and a week off he works on payroll week he doesn't work the other week and I, I think he works for another business in between he's available if we need him in between um, but I think it's his preference that he does a full week on a full week off mm -hmm. and obviously that's been done individually because that's what worked best for him mm -hmm. but I'm thinking that you know someone like him would be underutilized if he had another week free he already knows the skills you know mm -hmm. he already knows how to yeah. deal with doing the, the 10 things that he does every day. I'm imagining in a plan management business or in a, you know, if they were doing rostering, one of my one of my clients has 25 sill houses and their whole recruitment and HR and rosterings team is all in the Philippines, there's about maybe 15 of them. Um, and I, I could imagine that someone that has a large skill set like that, if someone was underutilized, it would make sense to also support another NGOs provider, I guess, as long as you're managing the conflict and keeping the information mm. secure mm. between providers. Yes. Oh, absolutely. It's a great concept. And, and you do see that uh, with a lot of staff in the Philippines, that they do take on multiple roles. So yeah. uh, they're very, very hardworking culture. And uh, and uh, yes, it's not, not infrequent that you see that. Yeah. Mm. Well, that was really great. I think that I learned lots today. What were your key takeaways, Paul? Look, for me, I'm just, I, I love this process. As a business coach, I get to see, you know, processes actually happen uh, that have been probably left by the wayside by a lot of providers. Um, I'm seeing that, you know, uh, they can manage the cost of having someone who is highly skilled in their business without completely stretching out all their, their profit margin. And they're going to really see um, uh, an improvement in not only their, whether they choose bookkeeping or administration or recruiting or, or whatever the process is, but it's going to allow the owner and the team to really spend more time on their clients, providing fantastic care, not bogged down in, oh, I've got to do the next payroll or I've got to figure out how I'm going to do this next social media ad, or I need to put all this paperwork in because we've got our audit coming up and we've got to get all our bits and pieces in process. I think it's, it's a really good point because I think sometimes when we think offshoring, we think, you know, you call Telstra and you, you talk to someone in another country. And so we, we sometimes look at offshoring and think that's declining customer service. In reality, if you do it right, it actually enhances customer service because it allows you to spend more time with your, with your customer. And, yeah. and that idea of focusing on what your skill set is. Mm -hmm. And I'm really clear, bookkeeping is not my skill set. should definitely be done Amen. by somebody else. <laughs> you know, I could spend all day on it and get it completely wrong. Um, so I know where I need to focus my time and attention as a business owner. And I think that's one of the number one things yeah. I work through with my clients is, why are you even trying to do this? <laughs> There's a better, someone who knows this better can do it faster, easier, quicker, way better. Mm. Don't mess it up. Mm. You focus on, you know, as a business owner, I think providers should be responsible for the governance of their organization, creating vision, 
steering the ship in the right direction, making sure they've got the right people on the right yeah. seats on the bus, that the bus knows where it's going. That is so much more important than worrying about the, the little rocks on the side of the road. Like, you know, those things need to happen, but it's their role to put the structures in place mm. and to lead innovation like getting offshore staff, look at their expenses, do those important things. And most importantly, make sure that the quality of supports is maintained. Yeah. Mm. That should be their full-time job, not worrying about payroll, marketing, advertising, trying to be an influencer, you know, and all of those things. Jack that, of all trades. Yeah. Not doing it properly. Not trying to be a jack yeah. of all trades. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Chris, what, you're, what you've got here with Care P BPO is going to be so uh, amazing to a lot of providers how are they going to get in contact with you? Sure. Well, our website's uh, carebpo.com.au, so please visit our website. Uh, we've got some good resources on there that you can uh, can read to familiarise yourself with with what offshoring means and, and some good blog posts. Um, and, you know, book a consultation with me. I'm more than happy to have a conversation with anyone who, who might be interested, um, and we can go through, you know, your own unique situation and, and work out if we can find a, a, a good solution for you. Amazing. Fantastic. It's been so great having you with us today. Thank you for joining us on our 11th episode for our second season. Um, and for all of our listeners, next week we are joined to talk about getting started with social media with Chris, the NJS Ninja from Grow DSP. Awesome. And I'm really looking forward to that one as well because Chris always has such a great energy. Um, and you've actually been speaking to Chris as well. I have. Yeah, yes. so it's a small world. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a very small community. It is. Yes. It is, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us and we will uh, speak again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Profitable NDIS Provider Podcast with Tanya Gomez and Paul Bryan. We hope you found today's episode informative and valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to subscribe, leave us a rating and share it with others who could benefit from our insights. Until next time, keep thriving.